There's a day dripping with irony. Religious leaders accuse Jesus of blaspheming, disobeying God, and serving the devil. The very things they are doing. Pilate, whose job it is to see that justice is done, declares there's no basis for the charges against Jesus, but then he gives the orders to have him crucified anyway. And now a whole battalion of soldiers is gathered around Jesus. Foolish Jew, they think. Religious nut. So they dress him in a purple robe, the color of royalty. Twist together a crown of thorns and thrust it on his head, bringing more blood. And they salute him, King of the Jews. The irony. For before them is the King of the Jews. And more than that, of Jew and Gentile alike. They strike him across the head with a mock scepter. They spit on him. Imagine that. Cruel, vulgar, violent men spit on the Almighty Lord. They bow the knee in mock homage. And yes, here's the irony. One day at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. After they have had their fun, they put his clothes back on him. And as Mark says to his, in his typical succinct and matter-of-fact style, They've led him out to crucify him. That's where we pick it up in this podcast. Let's begin with prayer. Though sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, though scornfully surrounded with thorns, your only crown. O sacred head, no glory now from your face does shine. Yet though despised in glory, I joy to call you mine. Chapter 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. During religious festivals, like the Passover, the Romans would sometimes line the roads leading into Jerusalem with crosses, men being crucified to show that if you mess with Rome, if you cause a disturbance during this festival, this is, this is how you end up. Simon from Cyrene is apparently making his way into Jerusalem on one of these roads as he encounters a man being crucified, being led out. That man, of course, is Jesus. Remember that Jesus has had no sleep, nothing to eat, and probably little to drink since the previous evening. He's been beaten several times and flogged. The loss of blood would have been massive. No amount of prodding or screaming at him by the soldiers is going to stop Jesus from collapsing under the weight of that cross. So it was not out of compassion, the soldiers draft Simon. They just want to keep this whole bloody business on schedule. The fact that Mark mentions not only Simon, but his two sons by name, is a strong indication that Mark's readers knew who these people were. We said earlier that Mark's gospel was likely written initially for the Christians at Rome. And a man by the name of Rufus is mentioned in Paul's greetings at the end of the letter to the Romans. In any case, the, the mention of the names is a strong reminder that Mark is writing history here. There were many witnesses to what happened that day. People who were still around when the Gospels were written. If Simon and his sons, Alexander and Rufus, became members of the church, imagine what that must have been like for them years later to say, I was there. I witnessed it. In fact, my dad carried the cross. Yes, imagine what it would have been like to be there. But in a sense, we were there. It was, after all, our sins that Jesus carried. 
And it was his love for us that compelled him to make that trudge up that skull-shaped hill. A love that burns just as brightly for you today as it did on that day. And through the power of the Spirit and the Word, we follow now as Jesus is on the home stretch of his journey to the cross, as he is about to carry out the central and most important act in all of history. Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. What a fitting name for such an ugly place, the place of the skull. Again, Mark is brief and to the point. No need to go into graphic and gory detail. His readers all knew what crucifixion looked like and how awful it was. It was designed to drag out the dying as long as possible, to make it as painful as possible and as shameful as possible. Your naked body grotesquely distorted and contorted as you struggle for every breath until finally you died of suffocation or heart failure or blood loss. That's the death he died for us. A drug was given at the beginning, and not out of mercy for the condemned man, but to make him easier to handle as he was held to the wood and the nails were driven. This drug Jesus refused for he had teaching to do from that cross, and he, he wanted his clear mind. His executioners gambled for his last earthly possessions, his clothes, they gambled in front of him, as if to say, you won't be needing these anymore. Verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Notice Pilate gets in one more jab at the Jewish leaders. The charge above Jesus says, King of the Jews, this is what your king looks like, Pilate wants them to know, and this is what happens to your king. It's fitting that his death should take place between two evildoers. Daniel Deutschlander writes, how appropriate that's where his cross is still to be found, with us, the evildoers for whom he died, and who acclaim him most gladly as our king. Verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It was not enough that Jesus' enemies succeeded in bringing about his death, no. Now they wanted to taunt him. They say they will believe his claims if he comes down from the cross. But they had already seen miracles. They admit it right here. He saved others, they said. They even knew he raised Lazarus from the dead. But seeing those miracles did not cause them to believe. No, it only hardened them in their unbelief. Believing does not come from seeing miracles. 
believing, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, comes from hearing the message, the message of the innocent Son of God giving himself as the sin payment for us. Although Mark does not record it, Luke tells us that the message brought about faith in the heart of at least one of the people there that day, in the heart of one of the criminals dying alongside Jesus. Although he too joined in the abuse of Jesus, he eventually came to believe this was his Savior dying next to him. And he prayed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Luke records. And Luke records Jesus' gracious, beautiful answer, today you will be with me in paradise. No, Jesus does not come down from the cross, though it would have been easy for him to do so. He will not use his divine power to ease his human suffering, not one little bit. Nor will he curse the cruel and spiteful people taunting him. Instead, all the words he speaks that day are words of love, undeserved love. Verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, regarding the darkness, I'll quote Professor Deutschlander. God shut off the lights as the light of the world is dying under God's curse. In one of our Lenten hymns we sing, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Here, at the cross, we see the wages of our sin. Here we see the end result of every impure or hateful thought every cutting, hurtful word, every misdeed. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We sing in another of our songs. And the answer is a resounding yes, we are there. For in the person of Christ, our sins get the punishment they deserve. We are tempted to look away, to hide our faces from the awfulness of his suffering. But don't do it. For here, here at this cross is God's grace, his love for you as he willingly takes your punishment. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Why, God, have you turned away from your only son? We know the answer. Why? It is for you, and it is for me. He is suffering our hell, the hell of sinners. For that's the very definition of hell, being forsaken by God. He is suffering our hell in order to bring us to heaven. Here's the crucial moment, the decisive moment, decisive moment not, not just in history, but in your life. As Jesus right here now takes away your guilt and punishment, behold the Lamb of God. And because he was forsaken by his Father, we never will be, no matter how dark it sometimes seems, no matter how, how far away God sometimes seems. He is near. He is with us always. Why? Because he left his son. Jesus, my heart breaks 
with sorrow over my sin. What pain I have caused you by what I have done. And yet, I rejoice to know how much you love me. What you endured would have been my fate if you had come down from that cross. So you stayed. You stayed for me. You were made a curse for me that I might be forever blessed. May I never outlive my love for you. Verse 35. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, some said. You would think that after the darkness had descended, that Jesus' enemies would have fled in terror, but no, some of them continue to mock him, making a pun on the Aramaic word for God, which Jesus has just spoken, Eloi. They said, hey, he's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up. No, Jesus, it looks like Elijah doesn't want you. No one does. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus gave a loud shout, not the whimper of a dying man, but the triumphant shout of the victor. It is finished, as recorded by the other gospel writers. At that moment, when Jesus dies, the temple curtain, the curtain which separates the most holy place from the holy place, tears in two. It would have been the time of the afternoon sacrifice, and many would have witnessed this tearing. That heavy curtain symbolized the separation between man and God caused by our sin. Only the high priest was allowed to go beyond it, and he only once a year to sprinkle blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But no longer is there a need for an earthly priest to enter that most holy place behind that curtain with a sacrifice of blood to cover the sins of the people. That blood and that sacrifice was only a picture. Now the reality, the Son of God has entered the most holy place of heaven and presented his Father with another sacrifice, his own blood, his own life, the ransom price which covers over the sins of the world. No need anymore for an earthly priest to go behind this, this wall for the wall of separation caused by our sin, not a picture, but the real wall of separation, has been torn away. And the way to God is now open for all. Jesus is that way. You remember in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? We said that was the theme of Mark's gospel. Who is this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? The centurion, the official in charge of the crucifixion, reached his conclusion. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus had not come down from the cross. His detractors hung in there to the end, mocking him. So what did the centurion see that convinced him that this dying man is the Son of God. Was it Jesus praying for his executioners? Promising paradise to a dying man who deserved no such thing? 
Was it Jesus looking out for the welfare of his mother? We, we don't know, of course, specifically what it was, but the centurion watched and listened to Jesus' words, and that is how faith always comes. Did this confession continue into saving faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior? Scripture doesn't tell us, but tradition says it did. Whether or not he became a believer, this conclusion of a seasoned, cynical centurion would have impressed Mark's readers in the church at Rome. Verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. A group of women had come down from Galilee with Jesus. They, I'm sure, intended to celebrate the Passover with him, the festival. Instead, they witnessed his death. Now they would also witness his burial. Verse 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, Pilate gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Apparently the disciples were either too frightened or too despondent to ask for the body of Jesus. But Joseph of Arimathea steps forward boldly. Jesus' enemies meant to give him a grave with the wicked. Typically, crucified men were buried in a shallow, common grave. But God had other plans. And Jesus was with the rich in his death, as Isaiah prophesied. Most likely, they first washed Jesus' body, then wrapped it in clean linen, along with the aromatic powders that were typically used in a wealthy person's burial. Then they placed Jesus' body in Joseph's own tomb. Again, a tomb cut out of rock like that was reserved for the wealthy. It is Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's next week as we take up Mark chapter 16. Until then, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.